This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm your host, Gordon Teeson. On today's program, we'll be listening to David Wheaton. He has a nationally syndicated radio talk show called The Christian Worldview. In addition to that, he's a former professional tennis player, ranked in the top 12 in the world at one time and played at Wimbledon. David was at Nebraska Christian. Let's go to that message right now. Some of the things I'm involved in now, I'm going to talk about my tennis background today, but what do I do now? I always get asked that question. It's like, what do they, what do they take professional tennis players and put them out to pasture when they hit 30 years old? Well, I still do play a little bit of tennis. I play what they call the seniors tour. Okay, that's a little disconcerting when you're only, well, I'm 44 years old, but this is my doubles partner, TJ Middleton. We won the over 35 doubles title at Wimbledon back in 2004. So I still play some tennis. I, uh, as Gordon mentioned, I also am involved with a radio program called The Christian Worldview. We've been doing this for about the last 12 years and uh, this is a program that's based in Minnesota. As a matter of fact, some of the seniors on the senior trip have been up and been in our studio for the, the, the broadcast uh, for, I think, a couple of different times they've done that. And so you can find out more about that. There's a podcast for this. It's a, about a 45-minute broadcast once a week at thechristianworldview.org. We're going to be talking about this book today. This is a book I wrote several years ago entitled University of Destruction. We're going to get into more of that today. That's why I'm here today. I have a second book coming out this fall, this October, called My Boy Ben. Now, for all you dog lovers out here, this might be the book for you. It's basically a dog book with a gospel message. And so that'll be coming out in October of this year. So we're in the middle of the publishing process of that right now. And then uh, lastly, what else do I do now? Well, I'm a, I'm a husband and I'm a father. We have an 11-month-old son named Tommy, and we have two, two dogs there. And so uh, that's keeping me busy as well. As I start out today, I was listening to a radio program several years ago. And in the program, someone said this particular statement, that life's most important decisions are made between the ages of 15 and 23. And when I heard the person on the radio say that, I thought, wait a second now, 15 and 23, that's pretty young to making the most important decisions in life. But as I began to think about it, I thought, well, yeah, you know, how well your decision as to how much you're going to be committed to your studies in high school determines how, what your grades are going to be and maybe how you're going to do on your tests. And then that maybe that decision leads to where you're going to go to college. And that's an important decision. And when you go to college, what you decide to major in is a, is a key decision. And because that might influence where you get your first job out of college. And that's a, that's a key decision that might put you on a track to go down for the rest of your life. And how seriously you decide to take your faith in high school and college sets you on a track because you might meet the person you're going to marry in in college. All these major decisions actually do happen between the ages of 15 and 23. And I think it's very interesting that these are your high school and college years. And the reason is is because this is a big transitional time for you. You're going from boy to man and girl to woman. You're, You're transferring from dependence upon your parental values to transiting to go to more of your personal values. And so your decisions in high school and college at this time of your life start you down a track that forms you to a certain way that doesn't change too much after you're 25. I know that was the case in my own life. When I made it to 25, I began to kind of settle into who I was. But those decisions before that 
really form who you are by the time you hit 25. And this is why high school and college is such an important time for you to, to set the right course for your life. There's a book that it's been out for a while. It's entitled Free Fall of the American University by Jim Nelson Black. And in this book, he has an interesting quote. He says, higher education or, or college today is a pretext for concentrating large numbers of unsuspecting and often poorly prepared students on campuses away from their families and other mediating influences where they may be socialized and manipulated by leftist faculty members and administrators for purely ideological reasons. Since the social revolution of the 1960s in America, the agenda of the left, the political, the liberal left, the non-Christian left, has been to transform the United States into a socialist utopia. Consequently, the issue of greatest concern on America's most distinguished university campuses is no longer traditional learning, but a new form of social and sexual indoctrination. Now, there's a lot in that quote, but it's actually true. In other words, college today is more about socially manipulating you and indoctrinating you to a certain kind of worldview that's not a Christian worldview even on some so-called Christian college campuses. And there's also a, a sexual indoctrination that goes on these campuses as well, too, which we'll get into in our second session today. But I remember back when I was 18, it wasn't too long ago when I was a senior in high school, that I didn't like to be considered unsuspecting and poorly prepared and easily manipulated and indoctrinated. I, didn't, I wouldn't like to have someone think of me in that way. But that's the way many college professors see you, whether you go to a secular college for sure, or even to some liberal Christian colleges. At this important shaping time of your life, when you're making all these key important decisions, they're trying to evangelize you with a worldview that's going to be evangelizing you over to their side, away from the type of worldview that you're learning in this school here in Nebraska. Now, how successful are they at waging this war for your heart and your mind in, at the university campus? Well, according to the Higher Education Research Institute at UCLA, they did a big study, we'll get into that too, as many as 50% of Christian students are going to say they have, quote, lost their faith after four years in college. And truly, as the cover of the book says, too many students are going off to a university not of instruction, but were the DEs over the IN a university of destruction for them spiritually. But this is why Gordon and Mr. Cumston asked me to, to come for these couple days to school to kind of coach you in a way, to coach you how to be a stronger, more effective Christian in high school and in college, but really to, to battle for your soul in a way, to, to persuade you to go God's way, the biblical way, just as your college professors are going to be if you go to a secular college, are going to be persuading you to go a very worldly way. Now, for those of you who have been involved in sports, you know that there's a process for being successful, a champion's process. I'm calling it the overcomer's road. You'll hear what that word means in a second. And at the beginning of the season, your coach gets you together and he, he puts you on a mission. And that's to motivate you. We have a mission this year. We want to become the best we can be. We want to win the, the conference championship game. And he sets that goal, that mission early, so it's a motivating force for you throughout the entire year, through the ups and downs that you face in all the games that you play. The second thing you do is before you play games, 
the coach gives you a scouting report. And the reason he does that is so you can be prepared for what you're going to face in the, the, the field or court of competition. So you can know what the other side does so you can prepare and be ready to go. The next step he does is once you have the, the mission and, and scouting report, he gives you a very detailed game plan as to what will work against your opponent. And so that's so you can execute under pressure. You don't just go out there kind of willy-nilly, kind of hoping it goes well. No, he's got a plan for what he needs you as an individual or a team to do. And then finally, after you, you play the game, he brings you back into the locker room and there's a, there's a post-game debrief. What do we do well? What didn't we do well? And so this is the road we're going to go on today and tomorrow. We're going to do four sessions together. We're going to start out talking today about mission this morning, the first session. In the second session, right afterwards, we're going to talk about the scouting report, what it's like, the, the scouting report on the college campus, what you're going to be facing. The third session, tomorrow, we're going to talk about the game plan, forming a game plan so you can be an overcomer on campus. And then the fourth session will be kind of fun. We'll have a little back and forth Q&A about some of the, the common questions that, that students ask about what it's like to, to be in college and be an overcomer. So let's start out today by talking about the mission. You know, there's three most important questions in life. There's actually a few, maybe a few more than that, but what are three of the most important questions in life? Does anyone have any idea what those might be? Name one of the most important questions that we all, every human being really needs to face in life, whether we want to or not. How about, where did I come from? You know, that's just a key question. I mean, did I evolve from nothing? Did God create me? That's a key question we have to think about in life. Another one here, the second one we're going to talk about this morning, is why am I here? What is my purpose in life? And then the third one is where am I going after I die? That, that's a key question. You know, I mean, these are key, fundamental, you know, big meta-narrative questions we need to answer in life. And there's one more question that's really important, too. I didn't add on here, but it's how can I, a sinful man or woman, be made right with the Holy God? That's, a very, that's the most key question. So we'll deal with this middle question here in this first session today. So if I asked you, why are you here? You know, what is your mission or what is your purpose in life? Have you ever thought about that? What, you know, if I had to write a mission statement for myself, what would it be? I mean, are you here to you know, play sports and, and get an education or get a job someday or to travel around the world or just maybe just to have fun or I want to I'm here to to make a lot of money in life so I can have a big house I want to have six kids and now those might be things that motivate you in life but is that your key and top priority mission in life because it's very important to have a mission in life because if you notice that every single really successful corporation or organization even this school has a very clearly defined mission statement I bet you if Mr. Cumston was in the room, if I asked him what the mission of Nebraska Christian would be, he would be able to recite it off the top of his head because that influences everything they do at the school. That is the goal. That is the purpose for why they do what they do here at school. But the interesting thing is while most successful organizations or schools or corporations have a very clearly defined mission statement, most individuals don't. They're not very clear about why we are here at all. But not having a clear mission statement in life is like a sailboat without a rudder. You know, the back part of the boat that sticks in the water that steers it. If you don't have a, a rudder on your sailboat, you're just out in the middle of the lake and the wind is just pushing you all over the place. You're just kind of floating around. That's what life is like without a clearly defined mission statement. I'll give you an example of this. 
of someone who doesn't have a mission statement. I was reading an article online recently. It was about drinking alcohol on campus. And this girl wrote in the comment section, he wrote, I'm a college student myself, and I do see these tendencies, drug and alcohol abuse, but this is the only four or five years of your life where you get to go out and do whatever you want. It is very hard to imagine getting up every day early in the morning for a small paycheck, going home and doing the exact same thing the next day. After college, there is nothing left to look forward to. If this is how life is going to be, college students have the right to go out and drink. Everyone I have spoken to me has said, do not graduate in four years. It will be the biggest mistake you will have ever made. The real world, S-U-C-K-S. This is the last time to go out and have fun before we get real jobs that suck the life out of many people. If I'm going to be looking at a computer screen in a cubicle for the rest of my life, I should be able to have four or five years of fun before my life becomes pointless and boring. Now, I'd like to say that is maybe the exception, the one percenters, but I don't think so. I don't think this is, I, I think she verbalized what a lot of people, college students, actually think. Even if we don't think we have a mission in life, we haven't clearly written it out and defined it, we actually do. All of us have things that motivate us, whether we are recognize them or not. The question is, are those things that motivate us are we going to end up in the right place when we chase after them? So what should the mission of a Christian be? I wrote down a, a couple passages of Scripture. I think we can find this. Let's look at the first one. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 8. For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. What is this verse saying? It's basically saying, if you're a believer, whom God foreknew, he also predestined. He, he wants you to become more like his Son Jesus Christ. Verse 2 is, what did Jesus say? To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So we're to become like Christ. That's a key purpose of the Christian life. And what was Christ like? Well, there's a word here that's repeated a couple times in this verse. It's the word overcome. In other words, it's like this. There's a sense of, there's a lot of challenge in this life. But he wants us to be like him. He wants us to overcome what we're facing in life. So that's really the, the mission for the believer, for the high school student who is going off to college. It's a genuine Christian who seeks to impact others for Jesus Christ while overcoming the tests, the trials, and the temptations of life with the supernatural resources God provides. And what are those resources? Well, he provides the supernatural word of God. He provides the Holy Spirit of God with inside of us. He uh, provides prayer, communication with God. There's, there's resources he provides. We're not on our own, in other words. We can be overcomers because Christ is our example and he gives us the power to be an overcomer. Now, an overcomer is a kind of a, I, I classify it as a victorious Christian rather than a, a fence sitter. This is a professing Christian who actually compromises more than not, kind of has one foot in the Christian world and one foot in the regular world. And by the way, career is irrelevant to be an overcomer. You can be a professional athlete, you can be a doctor, a lawyer, you can be a wife, a mother, you can be an accountant, you can be an engineer, you can be a construction worker, you can be an interior designer, you can be a computer programmer, you can be anything you want to be, basically, and be an overcomer. This is not necessarily a, an assignment to a mission field in Southeast Asia or Africa. It, it may be, if that's your calling. But you can be an overcomer in whatever career 
that you are in life, wherever you find yourself in life. So being an overcomer means that you influence those around you for Christ while you overcome what I'm going to classify as the three battlefronts that all of us face, both you at your age in high school and both me at my place in life or anyone else. Those three battlefronts are these. There's the first one is a, there's a pull on us from the outside, the world. First John 2 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So that's one of the battlefronts all of us face. We just face the world, the, the world system that is opposed to the way of God and of Christ. But there's a second pull, and this pull is from the inside, interestingly enough, the flesh. But each one, it says in James, is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So we have something inside of us. It's not, it's not enough that something on the outside of us is pulling on us. We have something from the inside of us that's pulling on us as well, the flesh. And lastly, there's a third battlefront. And the third battlefront is the devil. He's the source of these pulls. Be sober, it says in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we have an outside pull of the world, we have an inside pull of the flesh, and we have a source of that pull, the devil. It's a very formidable adversaries here, but it can be overcome. Let's get back to that statistic. As many as 50% of professing Christian students will say they have lost their faith after four years in college. Now the survey went like this. There were thousands of students who entered college and they took a survey. It was a self-professional survey, so it's pretty accurate actually because what people profess about themselves is usually quite true. And one of the questions on the survey is, do you consider yourself to be a born-again Christian? So all these incoming freshmen, your age, basically going off to college, took this survey. And of the students who said, yes, I am a born-again Christian as they entered college, when they took the survey four years later then, this is the percentage of students that said, no, I am no longer a born-again Christian four years later. So if they went to a public university, like let's say the University of Nebraska or University of Minnesota, where I'm from, 27% of those who said yes coming in would say, no, I am no longer a born-again Christian as they left. A private uh, university, like a, more of an elite college, like an Ivy League college, like a Stanford, a Yale, Princeton, Harvard, even smaller uh, private schools, a full 45% of those who said, yes, I am a born-again Christian coming in, almost half of them, four years later, said, no, I no longer profess to be a born-again Christian. There's a high percentage for a Catholic school. I think part of the reason of that is, is that Catholics don't typically consider themselves to be born-again Christian, but that begs the question, why did they check the box in the first place? But that's for another day. But this one's interesting. Protestant. 31% of students who go to, quote, Christian colleges will say they are no longer born-again Christians after being there for four years. That's higher than going to a, a public school. I mean, that's sort of kind of hard to figure out, isn't it? Well, we'll get into that as to why that is. And the last one is a very low percentage 
the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, the CCCU. Only 7% of those students. Now, these are the kind of colleges that where you go and the students have to make a statement of faith coming in, sort of the professors. So there's much more of an intentional biblical worldview taught at these schools. And you can see there's a lot less students who, quote-unquote, lose their faith after being there for four years. Setting aside the statistics, why do you think this is? Why do you think there are so many students who profess to be born-again Christians as they go off to college, but four years later, they'll say, no, I I no longer believe that anymore. I think there's a couple reasons for it. It's a traumatic transition going to college. We talked about this a little earlier. You're going from your parental values to your personal values. This is a big, huge transitional time in your life. Matter of fact, I think it's one of the most difficult transitions in life to go from living at home all of a sudden living on campus to going from a state of dependence to more independence. So I think most students who go off to college are unprepared and then they're demoralized after being overcome by what, by what I call in the book the three pillars of peril. And the three pillars of peril are sexual immorality, drugs and alcohol, and humanism, which is a basically a non-Christian worldview. And when they, they bump up against these challenges, these temptations in college that they they get knocked down and they get demoralized and they get talked out of it by their professors and they their morals change in life and they're and it's after four years they just say you know what I just really don't believe that stuff anymore that I was taught growing up and I don't can't profess to be a born-again Christian anymore and so I think there's it's a traumatic transition but there's a second reason that I think so many students will say they have lost their faith and the second reason is in the form of this riddle all possessors are professors but not all professors are possessors. All possessors are professors, but not all professors are possessors. In other words, all those who possess a genuine saving faith in Christ will profess it, of course. But all those who profess a faith in Christ don't necessarily possess it. Let's give you a quick example of this. If I sat up here and said, hey, I'm a concert pianist. What did I just do? I just made a profession. But because I profess that, does that make it true? Well, of course not. The only way that you would be able to know whether my profession is true, you'd have to see me walk over here to the piano and start playing some very complicated piece on the piano, and I couldn't do it. So in other words, I can profess anything I want, but do I possess the skills to be able to match that profession? That's the difference between a professing Christian and a possessing Christian. And Jesus talks about this. In Matthew 7, he talks about this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in other words, not everyone who professes, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. In other words, you can't just profess it. It has to be lived out. Many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and did in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is one of the scariest passages in Scripture. Whenever I read it, I always examine myself. Not doubt my salvation, but examine myself to see whether my, what I live and what I practice in my life is the same as what I profess in life. Now you might think this is a little bit judgmental to be calling people who go to college who, who say they're no longer born-again Christians. You know, how do you know what their heart is? Well, because I was one of these professing Christians growing up myself. You know, I grew up as an early professor. 
I received Jesus into my heart when I was about five years old. I had wonderful parents who taught me uh, the Bible, took us to church and so forth. And I started playing hockey when I was just about two and a half years old, like a good Minnesota boy. And then you can see my hands were apart here in the hockey stick. And by the time I got to be five years old or four years old, I started playing tennis. And you can see my hands are still apart in the tennis racket. That was always my best shot, my backhand, because of the influence of hockey. And so as I grew up, I won the state high school tournament in Minnesota when I was in ninth grade and was a, still a professing Christian at this point. I was pretty compliant to my parents and, and was kind of doing the right things in life. But then as I got into my teenage years, I went from being a professing Christian to what I would categorize as a digressing Christian. And when I was halfway through my 10th grade year, I went down to the Boletary Tennis Academy in Florida. And this was a very internationally famous tennis academy. You go to school in the morning. We practice tennis for four or five hours in the afternoon. Very intense environment. You can see here in the picture we have uh, on the far left, Martin Blackman is one of my teammates at Stanford. And Andre Agassi, the second from the left, maybe some of you know him. He's a former number one player in the world. Nick Boletari is the, the coach, the founder of that academy. And then to his, to his left is Jim Currier. He's a former number one player in the world. And that's me on the right, in case uh, you didn't recognize me. That's before I got on the, the, the lifting weight program. And uh, you can see that uh, I was a little, you know, really strapping. No one's ever accusing me of using steroids back then. So I got into this environment and, you know, my faith wasn't very strong. I just professed it and I began to, to digress away from it. And as I went off to, to college at Stanford, one of those elite private universities, I was doing very well in tennis. We won the national title at Stanford. But spiritually speaking, you know, I was being influenced by those pillars of peril and being diverted away from that profession of faith. And as I went off on the, the professional tennis tour and played for 13 years on tour, I turned pro when I was 19 years old and played till I was 32 and used to travel all over the world. And for the first several years of being on the tour, from the ages of 19 to about 22, 23, I continued to go down that wrong path away from what I had professed earlier in life. My life was characterized by wrong choices and wrong decisions. I was making poor decisions between the ages of 15 and 23. The wrong kinds of dating relationships, doing things that were dishonoring to, to God and my parents. I had a very proud attitude at this particular time in my life. I was my final authority rather than God as the final authority in my life. And yet, at the time, I kind of rationalized it. You know, I thought, you know, I'm a good person. I, I'm generally nice to people. and I do good things. And I can just kind of confess my sin to God. He's, he's always forgiving. And God understands that no one's perfect. Or I just compare myself to other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as some of my other colleagues on the tennis tour. I mean, these guys travel with their girlfriends. I would never do something like that, but I was living very differently than I would have professed. Or I, I just didn't want to give up on, on sin because sin is pleasurable. You know, I thought the Christian life was a little too restrictive and a little too boring. It looked like the people in the world were having a little more fun than the way I was raised. I wanted to make my own decisions. You're only young once, after all. The reality was, those battlefronts, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they were defeating me. It's like a bad matchup. It's like me playing basketball against like LeBron James. I don't care how hard I try. He's just better, and he's going to beat me every single time. And that's sort of the way it was for me in facing these battlefronts. I couldn't do what I knew I should be doing. I couldn't reform myself to get on the track. If I asked myself questions like, did I love God and want to obey him more than myself? Was I interested in reading his word? Did I want to be with other believers? Was I under anyone else's authority besides my own? Was I morally pure in my thoughts and actions? Was I forgiving towards other people? 
Was I content with what I had? And all those questions, if I was honest to myself, the answer was, was no. But something changed in my life when I was just 22 years old. I played a big tennis tournament over in Munich, Germany called the Grand Slam Cup. And this is a tournament that they took the top 16 players in the world qualified for this tournament. So I, I made the Grand Slam Cup. I was 22 years old. I was just, quote unquote, happy to be there, just to be in the field. But not only did I go and play the Grand Slam Cup, I won my first two matches. I was in the semifinals. I, I beat in the semifinals. I played the Wimbledon champion of that year. And I beat him in a very close match in the semifinals and on very little sleep. The next day, I had to play the final of the Grand Slam Cup against Michael Chang, who you can see in the background here. He was a former number two player in the world, won the French Open. He was a very, very tenacious player. And we had always had very close matches, and so I figured this would be a really tough match. But surprisingly, I went out, and I'm working on very little sleep and probably a lot of adrenaline. I went out and played one of the best matches of my tennis career and won in straight sets against Michael Chang. And here's literally the moment of victory beating Michael Chang. I'm looking over at the box where my friends and coaches are sitting and I'm giving them the fist pump after shaking the umpire's hand. Within 10 minutes after this fist pump, I'm standing there holding a trophy, having won the biggest tournament of my tennis career. And there's a row of photographers, just like you guys are in front of me right now. There's a row of photographers snapping pictures. I'm, I'm standing here posing with the trophy. And I just happened to kind of go like this and look up into the stands And we were in the Olympic Hall in Munich, Germany, and there were 14,000 people there that day. And 10 or 15 minutes after my big win, I look up in the stands, and literally 95% of the people are gone. The place is completely empty. I'm thinking, wait a second. I mean, that was really over in a hurry. I mean, I've worked my whole life, and all those pictures I just showed you of starting tennis when I'm age four, and all the junior tournaments, and the high school tennis, and going off to college, and kind of working my way up on the satellite level, and tennis and I I get to the Grand Slam Cup and this is the biggest moment in my career and now 10 minutes after I win the match everyone's gone and they've gone on with their lives I mean where's the victory lap here you know what's going on I remember walking off the court thinking wow that really came to an end really quickly and how am I going to be motivated for the next small tournament somewhere where there's not so much fame fortune and success on the line as there was at a huge tournament where there's a lot of prize money and worldwide television coverage to this tournament. And I walked back to my locker room and that was the first time in my life that God really got me by the nap of the neck and showed me, you are not going the right direction in life. And if you keep going this direction, you're going to end up in a very unsatisfying, unsettled place. A few months after that big win, I was on the cover of a magazine called Minnesota Monthly. And if you look at this picture, it was very representative of my life. I was nearing 23 years old now. This is probably four months after winning the Grand Slam Cup. And it says, David Wheaton, a smashing success. Now, for being a smashing success and being 22 years old and making a lot of money and doing Nike commercials and having big contracts and doing all this kind of thing, I don't certainly look very happy about it. You know what I mean? I'm behind this racket and the strings are broken. and that It was kind of representative of what my life was like. The, the broken strings are like the broken relationships in my life and kind of the dead expression on my face is like no matter how much fame, fortune, and success I was getting, it wasn't making me happy. This was a big turnaround point in my life about a year and a half after this particular cover photograph was taken. When I was 24 years old, a couple years after this big win, I stayed home on the tour I was a little injured physically, but I think I was more injured spiritually. I stayed home from the Australian Open one year. And for the first time in my life, I began to read the Bible. Now, that might sound a little ironic for a professing Christian to say, for the first time in my life, I began to read the Bible. But that actually was the case. 
I stay at home, I begin to read the Bible, and I begin to get an accurate understanding of four things. Of Number one, who God is. You know, I always thought of God as one who made a lots of restrictive rules that put a damper on how I wanted to live. You see, the problem with being partially right is that I was mostly wrong. In that the Bible said that God created me specifically so that I could know him personally. And that I would experience purpose and mission and joy and fulfillment in living for him rather than I had been for living for myself. The Bible says this in Psalm 139, for you, for God, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there were none of them. It's like God knew me when he was weaving me in my mother's womb. He created me to know him and to glorify him. In John chapter 17, Christ says to his father, this is eternal life that they may know you, father the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have set. You see, I was right about God making the rules in life and that he is a holy and just judge of mankind. I I understood that part. But the Bible says there is another side of God too, that God created me and wants to be in a relationship with me personally. And that following him is not for my lack of joy or my suppression in life, but is actually for my good and his glory that he's patiently waiting to reach out to me with mercy and grace for me to enter a relationship with him. So I began to get an accurate understanding of who God was and not this inaccurate partial understanding that I had growing up, which brings me to point two. I began to get an accurate understanding of myself. See, growing up until the time I was 24, my view of my own goodness was much too high. I thought I was way too much of a good person And my understanding of myself, my own sinfulness as a sinner was much too low. I didn't think I was too much of a sinner. Again, I compared myself to other people or rationalized, those kind of things. But when I read in Scripture in Romans chapter 3, and there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I begin to take a little more honest look at myself. And as I read the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, You know, have I always loved God with my whole heart and soul and mind? Well, of course not. Have I always honored my parents? Definitely not. Have I lusted after someone of the opposite? Of course. Have I ever told a lie? Yes. Have I ever hated someone in my heart? Yes. And the the reality was I had broken the Ten Commandments, God's law, thousands of times. And how I ever consider myself to be a good person? You know, if I stood before God in judgment day, having broke all these laws, how would God find me, innocent or guilty? I mean, the answer is patently obvious. I had created a conflict with God by practicing sin, and I knew very well what that word practice meant, because I've been practicing my whole life on the tennis court. I knew that practice is something you do regularly, day after day. And I realized that some of these things were characteristic and things I was practicing every day. And as I read this passage in Romans six twenty three, for the wages of sin is death, I realized that there is a consequence for sin. You know, people don't often talk about this nowadays. Like, yeah, we're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I get that. But the second half of that is, well, the wage of sin is death. I mean, that's not only physical death. That's eternal separation from God. You know, every sin that I had ever committed would be punished. Either I could be punished for it myself, or, as we're going to get to in a second, I could accept that Christ paid the punishment and paid the price for me on my behalf. And when I found out, got a more accurate understanding about my own heart, 
this was bad news for me. This was even scary news. This was fear involved here. But it was something that was clearly and consistently taught in Scripture that I was a sinner and would find myself under judgment unless something changed. And then came the good news. The good news is I begin to get a more accurate understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And the second half of that verse I just mentioned, for the wages of sin is death, bad news, second half, good news, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, this is a bad news, good news scenario. And as I begin to read other things about who Christ is, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5, what's a mediator? A mediator is, is like a lawyer. This is someone simply who, who mediates a dispute. Our sins created a conflict with God. We need a mediator, a lawyer, to set things right with the judge. And that's what Jesus Christ came to be, a mediator. Verse 3, Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So this really put the rest the fact that there's not lots of ways to God. There's only one way to God, and it's a good thing there is one way to God. He's made it pretty simple. Send his son. And I read more verses about his son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a verse I used to sign as part of my autograph. When people would ask me to sign your autograph on my tennis rack, I'd sign a verse with it because it's really not about me. It's about what the gift that God's given to me. Give praise to him. And then it said in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. And I have an only son now, an only begotten son. And, and, and the meaning of this verse is like, man, would I want to send my son to go die for people that are living in opposition, that hate me, that are living, offending me all the time, thinking, no way. But that's what God did. When we're sinning against him, he sent his perfect son to die for us. That's an amazing concept. And the last verse is this. This is, this is one of the greatest verses in Scripture because it, it really says what Christ did and does for us. And when I read this verse, for God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, you mean to tell me that Jesus Christ paid the death penalty I deserve to pay for my sin and I get credited with his righteousness? I mean, how does that even work? You mean God forgives me for all my past, present, and future offenses against him because of Christ's perfect sacrifice and God views me as forever having Christ's perfect righteousness? Are you kidding me? Me, a sinner, gets Christ's righteousness even though I'm not? My sin gets paid for by him and I don't have to pay for it? I mean, what kind of unbelievable offer is this? What an immeasurably valuable gift offer from God, the most amazing gift of mercy and grace ever. And you all know what the difference between mercy and grace is. Mercy is not being given what we do deserve, which is judgment, and grace is being given something we don't deserve, forgiveness and eternal life. Helps you think of those two things. Mercy is not being given what we do deserve, and grace is being given what we don't deserve. But as with any gift, a gift is either received or it is rejected. Someone gives you a gift at Christmas, you have a choice, another decision. You can say, thank you, or you can say, no thank you. And that's the case when I came to point four. What it was going to be my response to my new understanding of God, myself, and Christ. Now some reject God's gift as 
like unnecessary, or I can just become a better person, or maybe even exclusionary. You'll hear this one in college. This is so exclusionistic, the fact that there's only one way to get to God. Well, it is exclusionary. There is only one way to God, but it's incredibly inclusivistic too. It's open to everyone. Some try to revise the gift. They say, I understand God's gift is to me, but I'm going to try to do a little better myself and give a good gift back to God. So I'm going to go to church more and become a better person and become more religious and give the charity to help others. God doesn't want any of our good gifts given back to him when it comes to us being justified or saved. Christ's gift was fully good and us trying to give our good gifts back, like I'll believe in Christ plus my good works. No, Christ plus something ruins everything. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift, there's the gift, the grace, not as a result of works, nothing to do with our goodness, so that no one may boast. Transition, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see the difference? We're not justified by our works, but we're justified for good works. Big difference there. And this is what separates biblical Christianity from every other religion. Salvation is not based on my works. It's based on Christ's work on my behalf. And we are saved for good works, as that says. The Bible says simply, just receive the gift. Receive the gift. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And when I came to this passage in scripture where Christ said, repent and believe in the gospel, this is how I was saved when I was 24 years old. Repented means you turn from our sin, confess it to say, Lord, I want to go in a whole new different direction. I leave that sin in the past. I no longer want my life to be characterized by that. I want to follow you in holiness. Repented of my sin and then placed my faith in who Jesus Christ is, the perfect son of God, and what he had done on my behalf. And when that turning point happened in my life when I was 24 years old, an amazing thing happened in my life. I all of a sudden began to overcome those three battlefronts in life, the three pillars of peril, the things I previously couldn't overcome in my life. It was like a miraculous 180 degree turnaround. All of a sudden I had the strength to overcome the temptations of the world, the flesh and the devil, to end the wrong kinds of relationships, the dating relationships I had been been involved in, to ask forgiveness of those who I had offended, to keep my anger in check on the tennis court. No longer was the racket flying outside the fences because I was so upset at losing matches or not playing well. I had the strength to do the right thing. All of a sudden, I had desire to read the Word and be with other believers. I never had this desire before to start trying to live for God's glory instead of my own. My tennis career changed completely after that. It's halfway through my tennis career. My, my life is like, boom, change. Now I'm out there thinking, how can I develop my gift and how can I start glorifying God through it, not trying to glorify myself? How can I start doing this with a mission of serving and glorifying Him rather than myself? And it took some time. But he started getting me on a whole new track in life. And I went from being a professing Christian to now being a possessing Christian. So let me conclude by saying this. I sort of laid a foundation this morning about what our mission should be to motivate us when we're in high school and college to be an overcomer. I've just asked two things for you to consider this morning. To examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That's, uh, there's a Bible verse that says that. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And if not, to consider this gospel message this morning. To find out, to ask yourself, what am I trusting in for me as a sinful young man or young woman to be made right with the Holy God? Am I trusting in Christ's work alone on my behalf? Or am I trusting in 
my works plus faith in Christ. Because when we stand before God someday, it's not going to be, well, I did this, that, and the other. It's basically, is, is he going to see wrapped around you Christ's righteousness, or are you going to say, well, I've done all these good things? No, it's Christ's righteousness on my behalf. It says very clearly in Scripture, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey or believe the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's a very good news, bad news proposition, what we do with Christ. It's the most important decision you have to make in life because the second decision to be on a mission, to be an overcomer, is the second one I want you to consider this morning. Is that what, what are you going to be in high school and college? Are you going to plan to be someone who's a fence sitter, a professor, or you want to be a possessing Christian who wants to overcome just as Jesus overcome in this verse where he says, in the world or in college or in high school or beyond, in regular life and married life and work everywhere in the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And with Christ's help, if you're a possessing Christian, you can be an overcomer as well. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to get together. We thank you for the attentiveness of these students. Uh, it's definitely not my words that have any sort of impact, Lord. It is, we all know it's your empowering, amazing, eternal word that is truthful. That is what changes hearts. And uh, we just pray that all of us here would examine our own lives to see whether we are in the faith. Not to doubt our salvation, Lord, but just to examine what the fruit or the practice of our life is. And if we see that there's habitual sins practicing over and over in life in an unrepentant manner, help us to repent of those sins and to, to trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord, to be, go from a being a professing Christian to becoming a possessing Christian. And once we're a possessing Christian, Lord, help us to have a mission or a commitment to be an overcomer, like your son was an overcomer, knowing that you give us the resources to do it. We can do it with your help. So we thank you for this time now, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by David Wheaton at our chapel service at Nebraska Christian Schools. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus. Music